Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the St. George presentation that I made down in St. George on January 9th, 2022. This is the second time I have been fortunate enough to have been invited by the Southern Utah Post-Mormon Support Group, headed up by Wayne Hepworth. Wayne does an absolutely stellar job of heading up the support group there in Southern Utah and getting speakers once a month to present there to the group assembled. The first time I was there was two years ago in January of 2020, right before the COVID pandemic hit. At that time, I talked on the subject of how I reconcile my spiritual experiences with where I am today. That presentation was subsequently made into a Radio Free Mormon podcast and is available at RadioFreeMormon.org. This time, I wanted to talk about a subject that I have been meaning to talk about for years now, but never quite had the opportunity. And I discuss the details of why it is that I have not done it before now in the body of the talk, which we'll get to here in a minute, so I won't belabor the point and say it now. In the introduction, I do want to say what a wonderful time I had in St. George, how many wonderful people I got to talk to, to meet at the party the night before the presentation on Saturday night, as well as people who were at the presentation both before and after I was speaking. I think that after I was done speaking, I stayed there for another couple of hours until the last diehards in the audience had left, and it was great to meet and talk to everybody concerned. Thank you so much for making me feel so welcome in Southern Utah. As I have mentioned before, the year 2022 marks a substantial departure and change in Radio Free Mormon. I am purposely backing off of my law practice so that I can have time to present to the audience more of Radio Free Mormon. Many podcasts I have not done simply because I have not had the time. The idea going forward is that if I am not so busy practicing law, then I will have the time to get to podcasts that I want to do. And there is a huge backlog of those ideas, and hopefully I'll be getting to those in short order in the weeks and months to come. As part of this change in structure at Radio Free Mormon, I am relying more than ever on the donations of listeners. If you find value in what it is that I podcast here at Radio Free Mormon, and if you have not donated yet, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a monthly recurring contribution. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And I want to thank all of you who have already contributed to Radio Free Mormon. You are the ones who are making it possible for me to even envision this as a possibility. Semi-retiring from law and getting more involved in the podcasting arena. Thank you so much to all of my listeners. I hope you will like this presentation that I made at St. George. Admittedly, it is a bit different. You'll find that out shortly after we start, but I had a great time doing it. And this is one more podcast subject off the bucket list for years truly. Now let's get to the tape of the presentation I made in St. George on January 9th, 2022. Jeopardy. Anybody watching Jeopardy? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Keep panning there. I'll be moving. Do the zoom in for the smile. Okay. Show of hands. Anybody watch Jeopardy? It's a show that's on TV. It's been on for a couple years. 
There's a few people. Okay, great. Those of you who were at the party last night, you may have heard this, but it'll be funnier this time. No, I watch Jeopardy regularly just to demonstrate how smart I'm not. It is so funny. People, people are so willing to ascribe brilliance to people just because they can answer one question out of 50 right. No, if you were there watching me, Play Jeopardy and watching the blank look on my face for like a third of the questions and then once you excitedly get the answer wrong on another third of the questions you go this guy is not that big a deal <laughs> believe me and how about last Thursday anybody watching last Thursday there's a part of it by the way Ken Jennings is being the guest host now they're still trying out guest hosts after Alex Trebek passed away so you know Ken Jennings yes. Yes. okay He's like the biggest scoring uh, contestant on Jeopardy, I think, in the history of the show. Yeah, he's Mormon. It's a little religion. You might have heard of it. <laughs> I'm never going to get to what it is I have to talk to. And uh, I've got two hours that I have to cram into one, so it's never going to happen anyway, so let's have some fun. No, Ken Jennings is up there, and they ask a question, and it's based upon this entire project that President Nelson instituted shortly after he became president of not changing the name of the church, but sort of enforcing the use of the name of the church. And if you didn't know, the full name of the church is, I belong to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's the whole thing. The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And by the time you say the whole thing, you're really emphasizing the Jesus Christ part. He's like, the church of Jesus Christ. The <laughs> that reminds me of a story when I was passing the sacrament as a kid. No, I just joined the church, and uh, I wasn't actually passing it. I was blessing it because I was a priest. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I was blessing the sacrament, and I remember, oh, there was a kid over here. It might have been more recent, but it, it doesn't make any difference. There's a young kid, and he's trying to say the sacrament prayer, and I can't remember if it's the bread or the water, right? But because both of them start with words, oh God, the eternal Father, we ask again in, in the name of thy Son, and then it goes on from there. And I remember he got to the end of it, it was painfully obvious to me that he made a mistake. And the question is, is the bishop going to let it slide? Bishop wasn't going to let slide. So he gives him a sign, you know, you get the thumbs up, you get the thumbs down. He's getting the thumbs down, which means he's got to start over again in front of everybody. And the real problem is that this poor kid doesn't know what the mistake was that he made. He's not doing it from memory. He has the freaking heart right in front of him. And he proceeds to do it a second time. And he makes the same mistake. Now, once you've done it once, believe it or not, how many people here have blessed the sacrament before? No women? <laughs> okay, well, take it from me, and I think everybody else will agree with me. Who has raised their hand? It's kind of nerve wracking. You're up there in front of everybody. You guys say the words. You guys speak the right words. You guys say them in the right order. You guys say it, and, um, and you kind of speak it for God, too, just to really put the pressure on. Well, this poor kid, first time through was rough enough. Now the second time he's got to do it. And he's got to get, he makes the same mistake the second time. So now he's got to go the third time. And everybody's looking at the bishop going, please cut the kid some slack. Give him a break. 
Because the last thing we want to do is have, you know, after the sacrament's over, him going out and, you know, cutting his wrist, right? <laughs> so, no, I remember he got to the, the end and the, and the bishop goes, oh, yeah, do it again. And the whole thing was the way he started it. I'm sorry, there actually was a reason that this story came to mind. Where he started was saying, oh, God. <laughs> We asked thee in the name of thy son. And he, he screwed it up all the way through. But finally the bishop said, yeah, okay. We'll, just, we'll call it good. We'll start passing, boys. Okay, so. I, by the way, is, um, is Wayne here? Wayne? Right there. Right there. Oh, hi, Wayne. <laughs> so, uh, you want me to take up an hour. Does that start at two or does that start right now? Take an hour. Okay, everybody. That was actually what I've done so far as the fun part of the program. I hope everything else will be as fun too, but I've been working on deciding what the heck I'm going to talk about, because I always want to talk about something new. I, like Joseph Smith, and agree that it is my province to think of new things for my listeners to hear. <laughs> right? What an incredible idea. And I think he did it to a large degree. I wish the speakers in general conference would take a page out of that book. But there seems to be the opposite. They will never say anything that you haven't heard a hundred times before. So their province is not to dig up new things. It's just to reverse the same old things. But what I want to do is I want to talk to you about something that I've been longing to talk about for actually years. And it's a difficult thing to talk about. One of the reasons that it's difficult is because once I tell you about it, it will be so easy for anybody to figure out my real identity. This is one of the worst kept secrets in Mormonism, by the way. It's my secret identity. Anybody who wants to know it can find it out pretty easily. There's some of you who say, yeah, I don't want to know that bad. And I understand. <laughs> so, uh, but that's one thing. The other thing is that's kind of difficult. It's, um, it involves, here's what it is, okay? What it involves is I had a paper published in 2006 in BYU Studies. Boom, big clue. Second thing it has to do with <laughs> the second thing is you're really enjoying the show so far, aren't you? Okay. Second thing is that it has to do with um, Jesus, the doctrine of and the LDS Church of Jesus being our elder brother in the Spirit. Okay. Has anybody here ever heard that? Show of hands. Okay. Pretty common. We understand. We know that's part of the doctrine in the LDS Church. Well, what this paper did was it went back and tried to trace the development of this idea in LDS doctrine. So it's kind of a history paper, right? And I've never done a history paper before, so I was kind of, um, well, I was a little daunted by it. But what I wanted to talk to you about today, oh, let me, get, let me, let me close this off here. This point is, is that once I did the research, it was pretty much what I expected, though I learned a lot along the way. And the main thing was is that this is an idea that's not taught in the scriptures anywhere in any of the standard works. It's not taught, Joseph Smith didn't teach it. And in fact, this idea doesn't show up until really kind of the year that Joseph Smith dies, maybe a few days or weeks before he dies. But if I'm remembering correctly, maybe I should have reread this paper before I came here to talk today. <laughs> Orson Pratt on the East Coast. So he's not around Joseph Smith, but he seems to be the first person to put this out there, at least that I can I could find. All right, now what I want to talk about 
is not really that paper. It's about what led up to my writing that paper. And this involves two other papers, both of which never got published, and probably for good reason. Okay, so having said that, the first paper, this goes back to 1988, by the way. So this paper, BYU Studies, 2006. Going back to 1988, that was 10 years after I was baptized. And I am thinking about temple stuff, I'm thinking about the endowment. By the way, this is back when we actually had the penalties. And we had five points of fellowship through the veil. And I can say what they are, but those of you who know already know. And those of you who don't, well, I don't think you're supposed to. <laughs> But let me say that point number three, exceptional. <laughs> I really haven't had anything to drink today. But you should see me when I have. Like last night at that great party that Wayne threw along with his lovely wife. I'm just cheap looking at your name tag, Linda. She's so wonderful. And they're both wonderful together. There's a bunch of people who were there. We had a great time. Um, okay, so where was I? I was at the third point of fellowship, I think. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about this. By the way, at the time, I am immersed in farms material. I get back from my mission in 1981 from Japan, and I hit the ground, and um, I find that there's a wonderful thing called farms. People have heard of farms. They can raise all sorts of different crops there. It's a strange thing that we call it farms. I guess all the good acronyms were taken. So they come up with farms, Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. And John Welch was the guy who started that back in the 70s. Really, really smart, really nice guy. John Welch, uh, pleasure to have had some interactions with him. I'll mention a few of those, I think, during the day. So, but they're putting out stuff right and left. Remember, the idea of farms is to make available all the different research that's being produced on the Book of Mormon by different scholars in different fields. And they're just uh, copying it from wherever it was published. Some of it might be original, some of it's in books that have been published. But I'm, in, I'm out in Texas, for crying out loud. I'm in Austin, Texas. I do not have the access that some people maybe in Utah might have. And so it was a huge blessing that I could order whatever reprints I wanted. And they would ship them out for the cost, really just the, you know, whatever the cost it was to copy it and then to ship it. So it was a huge clearinghouse of information. And I was getting stuff right and left and reading and just doing all sorts of things. Anyway, at the time, there were some people, I don't want to blame farms for this. It might have been a farm's paper, it might not. But the idea was, we know this endowment is very important. We know that the gospel is eternal. We know that you always have to have the gospel if you're going to be exalted, which means it's been around since the beginning. So you've got the endowment. Well, the endowment must have been in existence before Joseph Smith, right? If he restored it, that would imply the same. So it's got to go back quite a ways. And the ancient Israelites had a temple, right? And there are some people who are crazy enough to think, well, it probably goes all the way back to Adam since he kind of figures in the story. But at least to the Israelite temple. And there were people who were theorizing that the LDS temple endowment was performed in the ancient temple that the Israelites had in the Old Testament. 
and they would talk about these different rooms that they had that are mentioned in different publications or scholarly works and you know we don't know exactly what they were doing in those rooms and if we don't know the answer to something what was going on then we can really always shove mormonism into that that void in our knowledge right so i'm very excited about that it's called an argument from silence not generally favored but I started thinking about it, and I started looking at it. By the way, 1988, I'm studying my scriptures like crazy, studying everything I can get my hands on for all the 1980s. I was very immersed in Mormonism, loved Mormonism, still do, find it fascinating, and did then. 1988 was the year that I read through all the standard works. One year, somebody mentioned it. Somebody said, you know, if you read, was it, I think it was eight pages a day. It could have been six. Somebody else can do the math. But if you read eight pages a day, every day, then you can read through the entire standard work in one year. So this is the year I was doing that. Now, it starts to occur to me that as I'm reading the subject about the history, I'll put that in air quotes for now. It wasn't in air quotes at the time, the history of Israel and their journeys with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then going down into Egypt, there's the whole problem in Egypt with the slavery and the bondage for like 400 years, and then Moses and that whole story, and then getting out of bondage and the miracles. Well, there were miracles for the Israelites, there were plagues for the Egyptians. They get out of there. It started to occur to me that there was a similarity between this whole scenario. By the way, when they get out of there, you know, they go back to the Promised Land, which is where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob came from originally. Okay. There's a return motif in that story. They're going back to where they came from. And then it starts occurring to me, this is like all I did. I mean, I am in law school. I am in a jazz dance company. I guess I do have a lot of things I'm doing, but I still am spending all this time immersing myself in these thoughts, these ideas. Then it starts occurring to me that the endowment ceremony also has the same general broad motif. You're looking skeptical back there. <laughs> I would too. None of this is for the truth of the matter asserted, by the way. This is all just to tell you what was going on with me. This is, the, this is what leads to the first paper, leading up to this one paper in 2006 that I mentioned at the beginning. So I start realizing that there's a return motif in the, um, the temple endowment, right? It's pretty obvious. It all starts up there in the, the celestial realms of glory, where you've got these different people who are talking, pretty important people. And then it comes down to earth, right? And then there's certain things that happen down here. I think everybody who's been to the temple knows what I'm talking about. And then ultimately you go back, right? That's the whole point. Is you come down from there, you go through what you're supposed to go through here, you are what true and faithful in all things. And so and then you make it back. And I'm starting to say, hmm, this looks similar. So then I started playing with the idea of whether the endowment ceremony, the endowment ritual that the ancient Israelites had was actually not what we have in the LDS temple, but it was actually the story of the Israelites. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down to Egypt, coming back to the promised land, everything that's involved. So I wrote a paper and it's called The Endowment of the Pentateuch. None of you have ever read that. I can guarantee it, it never got published. And it wasn't for lack of trying on my part. 
But the idea is that, excuse me, I actually have some notes here. Let me see if I can make sure that I, I don't omit too much. I've already omitted a lot. I was going to talk about how great Wayne is and how great Bill Real is. Oh, <laughs> we'll skip that. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. But hey, does anybody listen to Mormonism Live? Yes. How many people love Maven? Sorry, it's a little. It's enough. Okay. 
another one. I should, I'm gonna try one over here on this side. Let me see how this goes. Oh, that looks so much better. Okay, so we've got Abraham. Ooh. You know something? I think that these might turn in. This one seems tight. They don't tighten, we tried that. Did you tie? Okay. Anyway, so Abraham. Then there's Isaac. Uh, yeah, one S, two A's, right? And then Jacob. And then the children of Israel. Just, would you just stay there for the entire day? Thank you so much, Roger. Children of Israel. And it's very clear, everybody knows that Abraham and Isaac came in Christian thought to represent the father and the son, right? In the terms of the Akkadian, the binding story, the attempted sacrifice of the son. By the way, biblical scholars have now come to a consensus of sorts about Isaac's age, because it's not mentioned in the scriptures. So they've looked at other different documents outside the Bible. They've come to the conclusion that Isaac was either 12 years old or less, or 20 years old or older. And do you know why it is they came to that conclusion? Because if Isaac was a teenager, it wouldn't have been a sacrifice. <laughs> so we, it's a good one, huh? So we know that Abraham is like the father, right? And I'm gonna put up here, I'm gonna put Elohim. Okay? Elohim. You know, Isaac, at least in the story, represents, oh, Jesus, Alpha, slash Jehovah. This is back when I didn't understand those were actually two different things. And then, well, there's Jacob. And Jacob's a very strange individual only because of those three people. Who is it who actually leaves the promised land and goes down into Egypt? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Jacob. Okay? Abraham never goes there. Isaac never goes there. Jacob does eventually, I think. And that's, of course, after Joseph ends up going there and sold into bondage and, you know, the whole story with many Midianites. So Jacob ends up going down to Egypt. Egypt represents the world. So Jacob ends up looking very similar to me to Michael. And then the children of Israel, you know, is that us? And that's kind of what the paper plays with it hints at this idea. So I write the paper up, I send it into farms, it gets reviewed by none other than John Sorensen, and John Sorensen is kind enough to write me a personal letter back letting me know exactly what he thought of this paper. <laughs> and he didn't think much of it. And it was like, thanks, but we'll pass. So that hurt, that hurt. So that's why it never got published. And it's just a, it's about 20 pages or something like that. It's not like it's a huge deal. But I started still playing with this, this idea. Now this leads to the second paper that never got published. All right? And this paper has to do with examining this idea. This is the idea. Because once I came to this, uh, the end of the endowment of the Pentateuch, and I have posited that these individuals might have a relationship to these other people on the right, Abraham to Elohim, Isaac to Jehovah, Jacob to Michael, children of Israel to us, then it occurred to me, in some kind of stroke of inspiration, I don't know, it seemed like it at the time, 
that what if the same relationships that we are told in the scriptures apply to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the children of Israel? What if those same relationships applied to Elohim, Jehovah, Michael, and us? So this was the idea, right? And the idea was that if Abraham is the father of Isaac, and Isaac is the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of the tribes of Israel, what if Elohim is the father of Jehovah, Jehovah is the father of Michael, and Michael is the father of all of us who come to this planet? Now, I have done some research on the Adam-God theory in the early part of the 80s, mostly as an apologist, okay? So I wasn't completely unfamiliar with this idea and sort of where it might be leading. But then I wrote another paper. Oh, my gosh, it was like 200 pages, this paper, which engages with this idea. And the idea ends up being to examine this idea, see what the scriptures say about it, see what Joseph Smith had to say about it, and I finally came to this conclusion, okay? And this is what this paper deals with. I think it's called the Adam-God Theory Revisited. Once again, nobody here has ever read it. So the Adam-God Theory Revisited goes back to the old ground, which is how can you take what leaders of the church teach today about the plan of salvation, which I call the Orthodox Theory. I mean, if the Adam-God Theory has a name, then... What the church teaches today needs to have a name. The Orthodox theory versus the Adam-God theory. How can you make those work? Well, I've tried many times before that. Has anybody else ever been through that process of trying to make them fit? Trying to, yes, we got at least one hand. Don't be shy. Raise it high. Be proud. Okay, we got, we got more now. All right. Trying to make it fit. How do you make what Brigham Young said about Adam and God and all that kind of stuff. How do you make it fit what Spencer Kimball, he was the head of the church when I joined the church, um, and all the other leaders of the church have taught pretty much since then. How do you make it fit? There must be some way to make it fit because obviously, I mean, you can't be teaching different things about something as important as God, right? That's not going to fly. So there must be some way to make it fit. Well, I could never do that. But now in the... Um, so that was 1988 with the endowment of the Pentateuch, and then I started going into this. So this is consuming me in the early 90s. Absolutely. I, I was fortunate enough to live in a place where I could walk to work. It wasn't that far. But I remember walking to work, coming back home from work, and just thinking about this all the time, running it through my head, trying to work out the problems, trying to come up with an answer. And I finally did. You'll be happy to know. But here's the deal, okay? Here's the only way that I can find to make it happen, and that's what this whole manuscript is about, is the orthodox theory and the Adam-God theory cannot be made to harmonize. I couldn't make it happen. Smarter minds than I have tried, right? Yeah, <laughs> Can't do it. But if I take the scriptures and I take what Joseph Smith taught, all right, got the Joseph Smith up there with the scriptures, prophet of the restoration, his words get extra weight. If I do that, and if I strip away the non-scriptural elements of the Adam-God theory, 
Okay. Because believe it or not, there are non-scriptural elements of the Adam-Kop theory. Um, but here's the thing, the other part of it. And strip away the non-scriptural elements of the Orthodox theory. By this time, I kind of know the scriptures. I'm pretty well studied. I've got a pretty good handle on it. And I start realizing that the Orthodox theory also has elements in it that are non-scriptural. The beauty is, if you take away the non-scriptural parts from the Adam-God theory and the non-scriptural parts from the Orthodox theory, then wonder of wonders, you can make them line up. You can make them harmonize. So there was this wonderful discovery that I was going to bring forth to the world. And the world was obviously not prepared for it because it's never been published. <laughs> Let me see here. Um, oh, oh, I've got to read you. Here's, I, I did not bring the whole thing, believe me. I, I printed off some parts of it, including the endowment of the Pentateuch is in here. But there's something that I wanted to bring up that was on page 88 that's talking about. Okay, this is my conclusion to this part, all right? Oh, I called it, oh, my theory had to have a name too, right? <laughs> So I called it the super cool theory. <laughs> no, I called it the Delta theory. I have no idea why. I mean, what am I going to call it? It's got to be short. It's got to be, so it's the Delta theory. Anyway, so we got the Delta theory. The Delta theory, this is my conclusion of one part of this paper, page 87, for those of you who have a copy. <laughs> the Delta theory resolves all the suggested objections to both the Adam-God theory and to the Orthodox theory. It should be noted, once again, that the Delta theory does not depart from, nor conflict with, the proclamations of the standard works of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I was using the whole name even back then, which are the standard by which all concepts and teachings are measured, rather, where the Orthodox and Adam-God theories are in accordance with the Scriptures. Those elements have been adopted. And I read that part to you so I could read to you this last line. The Delta theory differs from the Orthodox and Adam-God theories only where they, where they themselves have departed from strict scriptural and revelatory underpinnings. And I read this today and I go, oh my God, the hubris. <laughs> the absolute hubris. I've got it figured out. Actually, it does kind of fit pretty well. But I've got it figured out. And I look back on this, and that's when I say the hubris, because when I'm writing it, you know, no, I'm, I'm right, I'm smart. Right? I've got this figured out. But looking back on it, oh my goodness. And this is something that I've come to recognize is very common in apologists. This is not a strictly apologetic work, but apologetics, there's often this idea of hubris. And it's an amazing and remarkable thing that in a church that claims to be led by prophets of God, who actually have a direct pipeline to the Almighty, hang in there, we'll be over soon. I see some yawns. <laughs> um, that you need a, that apologists are out there who are saying, well, no, 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 actually you misunderstand, good prophets are. We know what's right, and you're kind of off base. So that's a delicate dance to do. But they do it, right? 
So they are trying to save the church from itself. Okay? And we talked about that last week on Mormonism Live. That idea about the two Camorras. How many people here listen to that? Oh, thank you so much. I love you all. But yeah, they're trying to save the church from itself because the church is maintaining there's only one Camorra, Western New York. The apologists who are starting to be a little bit more clued in about science and archaeology as it's developed over the years realize that can't be true. Cannot be. We've got a different idea. It starts to sound like me, doesn't it, in this paper? We've got a different idea. It's a smarter idea because it accords with more of the evidence. And now we're going to try and just sort of very delicately, because this is a delicate thing you've got to do here. It's a delicate operation to tell prophets of God that they have it wrong and really they need to listen to me. <laughs> In the Mormon church, anyway. So that's what they try and do. They try and save the church from itself. And I'm reading back through this in preparation for this presentation. And I say, I guess that um, I did the same kind of thing. I did the same kind of thing at one point. So that's why I read that thing to you. All right. Now there's one. Oh, let me see here. Wayne, how am I doing on time? Are you keeping track? I'm keeping track. You're good. How am I doing? How much time have I used? You got till 3.15. Do I? Are you kidding me? Shoot. <laughs> well, I want to show you this for the board, okay? Because this is one of the really exciting things that I think I contributed to this. Um, it was sort of original. You know, there's so much that you go and you, you read what other people have written, and then you put it, you cite it, and stuff like that. There's an old definition of scholarship. Um, that I read somewhere. It's very funny. Scholarship is the, what is it? Scholarship is the art of digging things up from one place and then burying them in another. <laughs> that's, that's all scholarship is, right? You dig things up from one place and you bury them in another. And that's what you do. You're, you're reading these books, you're quoting them, and you're putting them in an article that nobody else is going to read, and then they've got to dig it up from there for future generations. Okay, so, but here's the thing. This is my contribution. I wanted to have this board here. Thank you, Wayne, for this. Because what it talks about is, all right, all right, back to Adam and Jacob and Michael and everything. Same relationships, maybe. All right, so... When I get resurrected, of course I'm going to be exalted. There's no point in being a Mormon for 40 years if you're not going to get something out of it. So, but I'm going to be exalted. So this is going to be me here. Okay? I have to do it small because there's going to be a lot more underneath this. But I'm going to be exalted. Now, I'm not going to put my wife on there. It's a good thing I didn't because I got divorced not long after. <laughs> True, but I mean, otherwise it would become completely unwieldy. That's the only reason. So this just has guys on it, just so you know. But you can imagine there's a woman there standing behind them. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, or you can just imagine curls on this one. This could be a woman, all right? But this is a resurrected being. And so the whole idea is, what is a resurrected being? When I get resurrected, what's the first thing I'm going to do? Well, if I look at Brigham Young, if I look maybe at kindness and principles, that's a bit of a weak part of the paper, but I'm going to create a world, right? This was back when you, create, when you created the world and you governed over your posterity in that world. So I create a world. No, 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 I don't even create a world first. I have, I have kids, right? Don't I have kids first? And these are my kids. And you can tell because they look like me. 
is that true? Dang it, actually, I actually brought the whole stupid diagram with me. Uh, dang it. No. Because otherwise then it gets too unwieldy. I do have kids, but they're not going to be represented here yet. Okay? Got to have them in the spirit first. Create the world. They come down. And now, all the kids come down. They do what we've been doing here, right? All right. And now, out of that entire world, has anybody ever thought how many people out of this world get exalted? It's a lot. It's not, it's not easy, but there's still a lot. So, especially when you count on people who are, you know, passed away and get taught in the spirit world. And then we baptize them. Um, this is not a good time for uh, Jews in the Holocaust kind of joke. <laughs> but everybody knows that we've been in trouble more than once for baptizing yeah, Jews from the Holocaust. People cannot get enough of baptizing Anne Frank <laughs> and people on the other side. Anyway, so but these are millions, right? Millions. Thank you so much for being here. You're great for my ego. <laughs> really. But really, millions, it's a lot of people. I mean, most of them aren't going to make it. Billions will not. But millions, yeah, that's doable. So these three people represent the millions of my spirit children who get uh, exalted from my first world. Does all this make sense so far? Has anybody else ever done this? Yeah, okay, because we're trying to figure it out, right? Okay, great minds. So these guys get exalted. Well, what is it? Was that me? I scared myself. What is it that... Um, it's working now. What is it that uh, they're going to do? What are my exalted kids going to do? The same thing. Because the planet's location is nothing and not predictable. So they go ahead and they each have their own worlds, right? So these are millions of kids who are exalted now, right? And these are millions of worlds. Does that make sense? One for each. And now, whereas I was the God over my world, and very happy to be so, I wouldn't think for a second that I don't have a, an upline, right? Right? I got my own upline. And it goes through the people who are above this world, etc. So, but I, I can't put everything there, so I just put this here. So here's my first world, and here's my kids, millions of kids. They each create their own world. And now they have their own spirit kids, and they go down to their worlds, right? So, every one of these worlds that's now in existence has a God who's directly over the world, right? But they also have another God who's over their world. Just one who's one more removed. That's me. <laughs> and if this looks like anything like Amway, that's purely coincidental. <laughs> but this is my downline. Amway is true, and I think I'm proving it today. <laughs> I love you, though. <laughs> I do. So, there's me. Boom, boom, boom. And now, each world here has two gods over it. Okay? So now, what happens here? Well, the same thing again. And now, we're going to do this. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Because each of these worlds has... Good thing I didn't put a lot of detail in these guys. Okay? Now I'm just going to do that. Okay? That's the reformed Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> That's the 
detail over and over again. All right. So now this is millions of millions. What's millions? It's like billions, isn't it? That's actually thousands of millions. So this is multiple billions. So we'll just put billions of kids now. All male. Yes. Actually, we're getting over here. There, there's some females. No, they're, they're female. You know, you got to get married to the temple and blah, blah, blah. You got to do the whole thing just like you. Okay. Is there more females than men? What? Could it be more females than men? It could be. In my world, there's going to be more males than females, I think. And we'll see what, what happens then. <laughs> so, and now each of these guys, now they each create their own world, right? Oh my gosh. And now we've got billions of worlds, each with one God directly over it, okay? Each with another God more removed, and then with me over the top, because I am the king then. I am Wilson Fisk. Then we have to get that, you're just laughing at me for a while. Okay, hey. Somebody got it. All right. I guess nobody walked. Never mind. We won't go into Hawkeye now. So, or Daredevil. So now we've got all these masses of worlds. Okay. So having said all of that, having said all of that, does that all make sense? I mean, that's pretty straightforward once you just write it all out and take some time with it. And I apologize for taking too much time with it. But then you go to the couplet that... Um, Lorenzo Snow, I think, came up with, right? And that couplet is, as man is, God once was. And I thought, well, if that's true, and we take what is expected to happen in the future with me, what happens if we go backward in time, and instead of having me at the top of this chart, instead of having me up there, We put Elohim up here. Because we would expect that he would have done something similar. I would have expected it. So Elohim does something similar. At some point, he's at the, he's he's a newbie. He's got to create his own first world, right? And then I started thinking, okay, so if, if Elohim, if we put him at this point in the chart, then the $64 question becomes, where are we? Where are we on this chart if we put Elohim at the top? And then I just did some absolutely wonderful, not to be too self-congratulatory. No, honestly, this is years and years of study and reading scriptures, and then something that stuff pops out at me like once a month or something. It's agonizing. It's like trying to find gold in a silver mine. <laughs> but every now and then I find some nuggets. And this is one of them, right? Because in... It's true, Sarah. Sarah? You said nugget, and I couldn't stop laughing. Is nugget honey? Is that a honey word to you? I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... If you look, I'm not going to have you read the scriptures, okay? Did anybody bring, anybody bring your scriptures today? <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm sorry. I was, it's in the 1980s, and I'm going to a fireside at the, um, the Institute building, right? And we have a member of our state presidency there. His name is Brother Judd, Val Judd. He was uh, an engaging speaker. He was kind of forceful. He was McConkie-esque. And I remember I had taken a friend of mine 
from dance class, and her name was Debbie Fawn. And yeah, we're just going as friends, but you know, you know why you take people to these, right? Because they're prospective hummingbirds, right? This is what we do as Mormons. By the way, this is also one of the great blessings of not feeling that pressure anymore. To not, I mean, what is it? It's like every relationship that you have with somebody who's not a member has a, an ulterior motive, always. That's the way it was with me, an ulterior motive. There's always an ulterior motive with every relationship you have with every person who's not a member of the church, and that's to get them baptized. Or at least to have them listen to the missionaries. It's just, uh, it was grinding, it was terrible. But I can actually have a relationship with people who are not members without ulterior motives. What a huge difference. I mean, you can actually have like real relationships with people with a concept. <laughs> so having said that, back at the fireside, 1980s, Debbie Vaughn, everybody else is there. It's in a room not as big as this. But Val Judd gets up there. And uh, I can't remember what he's talking about, but he starts at the beginning by saying to everybody, he said, did you bring your scriptures tonight? And a few people kind of raised their hands. I didn't have my big quad there. And, um, and then Brother Judd goes on to say, because if you don't have your scriptures tonight, you're a loser. Oh my God. And you know, you go to all this effort, and it's kind of intimidating to ask a non-member to come to a, a function, a church function, and then you've got a member of the state presidency saying you're a loser if you don't have your scriptures there. You know, but I remember I, I kind of looked over and I said, I showed her my scripture, I said, I'm not a loser. <laughs> <laughs> and bless her heart, Debbie looks back and she goes, I know you're not. <laughs> and the amazing thing is that Debbie Vaughn never got baptized. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? After that exposure? So anyway. What the hell was I talking about? Probably nothing anywhere near as interesting. So Elohim, oh Moses, Moses chapter 1. Moses chapter 1. Well, the first question is, all these worlds, okay, they have people in mortality on them, right? At some point or other, okay? So the question is, we're in mortality right now. So are we on one of these worlds that's in this graph? So then it's a process of elimination, right? Well, we could be here. We could be here, right? Except for the fact that the scriptures are pretty clear that God is a little bit bigger than just having one world, right? He's got tons of worlds. In fact, if you look in Moses chapter 1, verse 33, it says, worlds without number have I created. Well, I don't know how many that is, but I think it's more than one, okay? So it's obvious that this doesn't work. We can't be here experiencing mortality now. Then if you go, well, maybe we're in one of these worlds, all right? Maybe we're in one of those worlds. Possible, but then you got Moses 1, 35, which is two verses later, where God says, not only are there worlds without number that I've created, but there are many worlds that have already passed away by the word of my power. I think that's what it says. And then I do a little analysis, and it looks like passed away doesn't mean they blew themselves to smithereens with atomic warfare. But it looks like what it really means is they've gone on and been exalted. Okay, it's gone on and become celestial lives. And the inhabitants thereof have gone on to their rewards. 
So, if that's true, and he's got many worlds that have passed away, then it can't be any of these worlds on this level either. Does that make sense? Because if it's a world on this level where we're in mortality, then only that one world has passed away. Does that make sense? Did that make it better? <coughs> okay. So if you go down in this path, the first time you get to a position that is a possibility to be our world, where we are right now, sitting here this Sunday afternoon, listening to the best presentation you've ever heard in your life, it's got to be on this level. Okay? Only there is God, a creator of worlds without numbers, and many of them have passed away onto their glory. So if this is a mall map, right? And you're in the mall, you ever go to those maps to find out where the stores are? That's what it says. <coughs> I'm going to grab some water. You are here. So now we know where we are. And having said that much, are you guys feeling like really edified by this now? <laughs> I hope so. This is all, almost all I'm going to talk about here. But if we are here, okay, if we are here and Elohim is up there at the top, then that raises some really interesting questions, doesn't it? And if you're like me, the question you're asking, okay, so, if I'm here and Elohim is up here, who the hell is that? And who the hell is that? Right? Oh my gosh. Can you hold this for just a second? Thank you. <coughs> Hope you got that. Thank you. Yeah, because there's apparently two gods in between us and Elohim. And who are they? And if the scriptures have anything to say about it, then it would seem like this guy right here is Jehovah. And this guy right here is Michael. Okay. And all of a sudden, I'm like reverse engineering this whole thing and coming up with Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. <laughs> all right. So there's all this stuff that's going on. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Some of these problems in both the Orthodox theory and the Adam God theory that are not supported by the scriptures, not explained by the scriptures, are old chestnuts that many of us have thought about or have come up in church, especially if you were ever in a high priest group. That's a joke that high priests will get. Um, if the only way that you become exalted and become a god is through going through mortality and passing the test and getting resurrected, how did Jesus become God before the earth was created? Old chestnut, right? This solves it. Orthodox theory doesn't. There's the same problem with the Holy Ghost as well. Holy Ghost is even worse because he didn't even have a body. Okay? And you know you got to have a body to be exalted. Well, that's where... <laughs> oh, my Lord. Let me just do this really quick, okay? That's where it occurs to me that if we call the Godhead a trinity, 
This will actually be the most interesting part of today's presentation. If we have a, if we have a god that we just call it a trinity, we know it's not the trinity, but a trinity of three beings. Okay? You've got Mormonism, strangely, has two trinities. It's really bad that the person who's up there fixing the board is getting all the attention. Because <laughs> I can see where you're looking. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll get you for that. <laughs> no, Mormonism has two trinities. Have you ever thought about that, by the way? There's a good old trinity. Let me see here. I'll just use this blue. Maybe use blue yet. There's the Father, Son, and Holy. There's the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, right? Everybody knows that. That's in the. Is that in the first article of faith? I think it's in the first article of faith, right? Can anybody quote the first article of faith? Yeah, I think that's that's there. But in the the temple, we have a different. We have a second trinity. There's two trinities in Mormonism. And the Trinity of Mormonism in the temple is what? It's Elohim. Everybody say it with me. Elohim, Jehovah. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have put that there. And Michael. So it's very common for people to recognize in the church that the Father's Elohim and the Son is Jehovah, right? But now you've got an odd man out. You've got an odd man out. The Holy Ghost and Michael. Are there three people in the Trinity? Or are there four people in the Trinity? That's the question. And so what I suggested was, no, the Holy Ghost and Michael have the same correspondence just like Father and Elohim do and the Son and Jehovah do. So I brought that up to talk about Michael being here and that Trinity being the same there, just referred to by names, quote unquote names, and over here by more offices. Okay, so those are a couple of the problems. By the way, I'm almost done with that. It's exhausting. Can you imagine how long I could go on about that? <laughs> I know. Projectile vomiting ensues. <laughs> all right, so having said all of this, now here's one of the other problems. One of the other problems with the Orthodox theory is the same problem as with the Adam-Don theory. And that problem that's not supported by the scriptures is that Jesus Christ is our elder brother in the spirit. Okay? Because everything goes to pieces. You can't fit that in here, right? And you also can't fit it into the orthodox theory, actually. I'm not going to go through that analysis. You can thank me later. But it doesn't really fit. Because one of the problems, I think, with Mormonism, and I will say this much I had planned on it, is that generally, when you think about it, you've got God, Elohim. He has scads of spirit kids. And the oldest one is Jesus Christ. And then probably the next one is Michael. The third one is me. <laughs> I did. And then there's everybody else who's down here on this earth, right? So it's like in two dimensions. But when you think about God being a God over a world without number, it doesn't sound like that's really Elohim. That's a lower level God. And what I tried to do, and what I'm convinced Brigham Young did, by the way, was he tried to look at what Joseph Smith taught and tried to understand it, and he put it more in three dimensions, like that. Joseph Smith hinted at it, but I can't find any place where he actually laid it out. And I don't know that Brigham Young ever laid it out like this, but I think he's thinking more in these dimensions and in these tiers of things. So 
The other question was, if this is a world, and you got millions of worlds, is that, is that a galaxy? And you got millions and millions of worlds, and is that a universe? Oh my gosh, I was going places with this. I sent it into Deseret. Can you imagine? No, I'm crazy. I sent it into Deseret. And they kept it so long that I actually forgot that I sent it into Deseret. Until I got a letter. And the letter says, oh, thank you, Mr. Radio Gray Mormon, for submitting this very, very interesting uh, paper. We are referring it to somebody up the chain who knows this issue better for their review. And I thought, oh my gosh. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> who could it be? I don't know. And within a week, I got the rejection notice. <laughs> so whoever it was they sent it to, it didn't take a long time for them to figure out, no, we're not publishing this. We're not touching it with a 10-foot pole. But in this paper, I take my general understanding that there's nothing in the scriptures and nothing in Joseph Smith that supports the idea that Jesus is our spirit brother. And I lazily, yes, <laughs> I am and have been a lazy learner. I sort of just say it because I'm pretty sure it's true. Anybody ever said something because they thought it was pretty sure it's true? Anybody ever said something even though they were pretty sure it wasn't true? <laughs> no hands, come on. So what I realized was at this point, even though nobody had shown really that much interest in anything I'd written, actually there were some papers being published along the line, so it wasn't completely without hope. I thought, you know what I have to do? And it really hurt me to realize this. I have to do the work. And I have to go in and go back and look at the documents and look at everything and do a paper now that actually supports this idea, hopefully it'll support it, that the idea that Jesus is our elder brother in the spirit is not supported by the scriptures or Joseph Smith. So I ended up, I got a, um, I live in a small town in, in um, Washington State for crying out loud. I don't have access to any, many church books. This is the early 2000s. And so what I get did I get it for Christmas? I have no idea. It was a CD-ROM. I think they called them CD-ROMs at the time. The abbreviation of CD hadn't been conceived yet. And it was an LDS InfoBase. Anybody remember that? Yeah, I got that. It had just tons of books on the CD. And I was really concerned, I've got to tell you, number one, I've never done a history paper before. And here I'm going to try and do one. And number two, I have no idea how thorough this, these materials are. In other words, is there stuff on, that's not on there that would impact my paper one way or the other? And I'm just not going to know about it because I don't know. Well, I did the best I could. Printed off all these papers, filled the notebooks full, went through, did the paper, sent it in. And by this time, I think I'd made John Welch's acquaintance. John Welch is the, um, he was at the time the editor-in-chief of the BYU studies. I don't know if he still is. He's also the dean of the law school at BYU. He's retired. He's retired. Good for him. So, um... Anyway, I sent it in, held my breath. I thought it was pretty good. I always think it's pretty good. I always think there's a man kid. <laughs> Nothing. Okay. <laughs> That's a story I won't get into, but a good one. It's from the music. 
anyway. I send it in and I hear back pretty readily from, I have never ever done something that's actually kind of scholarly before with a, a board of editors, there's an editorial board. And I'm getting, I think I'm almost at my time. Anyway, I hear back from the fellow who's uh, the history editor. They have different editors, who knew, on the board. So I hear back from him on the phone, really, really nice guy, really liked my paper. Um, I forget his name. It was like Woodward. I think he did something about Nixon once. I think he did. No, it might just be like Woodward or something different. Anyway, he was so complimentary, I was blushing on the other end of the phone. I remember he said the word astute as it related to me. <laughs> and so I wrote that down, astute. Anyway, but the, one of the main things that I was glad about was he didn't say, oh, you forgot this source and this source and this source that I didn't have access to. Apparently, I covered the bases. The LDS info base did it for me. And the second thing that he said was, well, you've got to understand this is going to be a hard sell. Because there are people on the board who are kind of conservative and who aren't going to like this idea that the idea that Jesus is our spirit brother is something that's not supported by the scriptures. It's something that Joseph Smith never taught. And it sort of became a development in the church. And then it got cemented into the doctrine by repeated usage by leaders of the church in the latter part of the 19th century. To the point where now, I mean, everybody it's just sort of accepted. This is doctrine in the LDS church. And this paper ends up sort of challenging the underpinnings. And I said, okay, okay, I, I hear you. And he says, okay, well, we're going to do what we can. And then sometime after that, sometime after that, I think the question came to me from one of the more conservative members of the board who remained forever unidentified and anonymous. Whether I was writing this paper because it was an apologetic piece to try and defend the church against the charge that Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers. <laughs> and I said, no. And I guess that was sufficient, so I got past that hurdle. Anyway, what ends up happening is I'm asked to write and rewrite and correct and amend this paper several times over the next three freaking years. <laughs> I could not believe it. I submitted it in 2003. It did get published, as I mentioned, in 2006. Three years. And here's what happens is that it has been so, I, I was pretty quick on getting those uh, corrections done and sent back to them. Within a week, I would get them done. I was very eager about this. And it had been, I don't know, almost a year since I heard anything about it. And once again, I kind of forgot. I mean, I know it's there, but there are other things that go on in one's life, right? that demand immediate attention instead of waiting by the mailbox to hear something from BYU studies. And I had been talking with John Welch, as I mentioned. And that's important for this reason is because I think this is toward the end of 2005 or toward the beginning of 2006. And I'm asleep at night and I have a dream. And my dream is this. I'm standing in the living room. The phone rings. My daughter answers it, one of the three. My daughter answers it, and I say to her, who is it? And she says, it's John Welch. And I said, what does he want? She says, she hands me the phone, and she says, he says that your paper is going down in flames. <laughs> and then I wake up. I'm sure in a cold sweat. 
But no, that's where the dream ended. But it's one of those dreams that you remember, right? That sticks with you. And so much to my surprise, I wake up, I think, well, that's a funny dream. I wonder if that's true. Go down to the office, turn on the computer, check the email, and I have an email in my email receipt box from John Welch. And what it says is, he's such a, he's such a gentleman. He says, look, Radio Free Mormon, I know that you have been so patient with us, and I really appreciate that. We've been trying to work through this. We've been trying to do this. Here's the deal. We're at this point. I want to give you three options. Number one of which is you've got a good, solid paper. You're not committed to BYU studies. You can chop this around, and I'm sure somebody else will publish it for you. Number two, there are still some issues after three years that some members of the editorial board have. And if you want to, I mean, you've been making all these changes, and we appreciate it, and I don't want to impose on you anymore, but you can make these changes. Or, third option, if you trust me, I mean, it's John Welch. Of course I trust him. Um, if you trust me, I will make the changes that are necessary to make the board happy. And then we'll just go forward and, and publish this thing. And of course, he's the editor-in-chief, right? I said option number three, absolutely, I trust you. Of course, I was wondering what the was gonna look like when he got done with it. But I was very pleased to find out that pretty much everything that was of importance to me in that paper did make it into the publication process. So that's the story behind how it is that that 2006 paper came to be conceived, written, and ultimately published. Now in conclusion, <laughs> I thought there were some conclusions here that I have to bring up. And here's three conclusions. Oh, there's going to be two questions and answers too, right? Well, these questions. I think so. Okay. Um, I wrote these when I was sitting at a, what was it? Was it a green iguana, a blue iguana? It was some kind of restaurant with iguana in it. Today, I wanted to write down some conclusions. Okay. This whole thing with um, the model of the universe that I created, I was went from being very tentative, hesitant, more sure, more confident. This is to this is the way things really are. This is the way things really are in the universe. This is how the gods are related to each other and to us. At some point after that, I started thinking, really? <laughs> You're thinking that just because you worked this out in your head that this actually reflects reality in the cosmos? And I started realizing that was kind of a big ask. That's with a K at the end. It was a big ask. <laughs> <laughs> and I started wondering if what I was doing inside my head had any, any bearing on what was going on outside of my head, much less to the furthest extent of the universe. I mean, we are talking about to infinity and beyond here. So I started questioning it. And at some point then, though it took a while, I started thinking, well, if what I have come up with and tested it so carefully and found all these proofs in the scriptures and in Joseph Smith, if that really doesn't necessarily, probably doesn't, reflect reality in the universe, then can I say 
anything different for the Adam God theory, and can I say anything different for the Orthodox theory? I mean, how much do these theories actually reflect what really is? And I started having doubts about that. Okay, so that's one thing. That's one part of the conclusion. This was actually when I started losing some of the hubris. Well, I lost it there. I developed it in other areas. <laughs> I think it's maintained kind of a, a steady amount, just manifesting differently. Number two. Oh, that was number two. I'm sorry, I did number one and number two there. If it has nothing to do with the universe, then is it not possible, neither does the orthodox theory or any theory. And then finally, the last point, I already brought it up, was about the hubris involved. And thinking that I can know what's going on in the universe by looking at uh, the standard works. I'm trying to puzzle these things out over a course of years, walking to work and walking home from work. Yeah, the hubris involved. So, trying to get away from the hubris. It's so much better to have questions than answers. I used to think having answers was the best thing in the world. That was a huge appeal of the LDS Church to me when I was 18. It had the answers. It had all the answers. But having the questions now is so much better. And now I can watch the LDS Church evolve. Devolve. Whatever you want to call it. But when I joined the church in 78, they had, it seemed they had all the answers for everything. Now they don't know anything. <laughs> now they refuse to have a position on things. And usually the things where they stop having a position on is where science has shown that the position they held originally can't be correct. So they never say, oh, we were wrong about that. <laughs> Can you imagine the LDS church going, oh, we were wrong about that. <laughs> No, they go to, we don't have a position on it. As if they never had a position on it. As you want an example of it, Mormon is in line from last Wednesday. And this Wednesday, we'll be talking about the second Watson letter. Da, da, da. Da, da, da. That's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so that's everything I have today. You have been so, so nice to pay attention. I've got the story out of my system. I'll never tell it again, I promise. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. <laughs>